I want to welcome all of you who are visiting with us today, uh, whether you're a first-time visitor or a returning visitor, uh, whether you've come from near, come from far, we're glad to have you because this day is a special day for the Church of Jesus Christ. It is a day that we celebrate uh, the resurrection of our Savior and Lord Jesus. So uh, I'm glad you're here, uh, especially, uh, boy, uh, I was ready to ask for an encore after that children's choir, right? I mean, just, you could probably listen to them for a couple of hours. Uh, they're so sweet and adorable, aren't they? What a joy. Just, uh, that's, uh, that's the future. That's our future. Kind of thinking about that. So many people, uh, many of you parents here, but many of our workers, children's workers, uh, uh, have opportunity to, to influence the, this next generation for the Lord. And they're already beginning to sing those truths. And we pray that the truths that they're singing would one day be the truths that, are, uh, that they hold dear to their hearts. And, uh, but I hope that as you've been listening to those songs, that those truths are dear to your hearts. Uh, because today we, we do celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And that's just not just a, a something special for the church. It's something special for each and every one of us. It's a special truth. And, and hopefully you know Christ as your Savior and Lord. We're glad to have you here with us. Welcome. Anyways, as we continue worship this morning, I'd like you to, just to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24, verse 1 through 12 is where we're going to be to Luke chapter 20, Luke 24, 1 through 12. And as many of you who have been with us regularly know, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke. And so we're, we're in chapter 5, actually, right now. So uh, kind of like today is like uh, we're skipping ahead to see how the story ends. So uh, if you don't know it, you know, plug, and you, you don't know the ending, you wanna, don't want a spoiler, you plug it here right now because uh, today's sermon is going to tell you, the, give you the spoiler, all right? So, but it's always good to kind of flip the end of the book and see how it ends anyways because if it's bad news... Why bother reading the rest of the book? You know, this is, but it's good news, thankfully. And uh, in the end, Jesus wins. Okay, so anyways, uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 1 to 12 is where we're going to be today. We're going to uh, walk through a familiar resurrection story to us, but uh, pray that the Lord would use it to bless us. I want to read the text within the sermon, uh, but let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ Thank you that for this church body that you have purchased with the blood of your son and that you have brought to saving faith through because based upon the resurrection of Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have because Jesus is not dead but is alive. And we thank you that we can sing songs of praise. Thank you that we can know you. Thank you that we can know forgiveness of sins and know life here and life eternal. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for your great sacrifice. We praise you this morning. Uh, we, every believer here wants to offer up to you our worship with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul and strength. We, we want to express our, our love for you, Lord, our gratitude to you. We want to bow down and worship you because you are worthy, because you gave us the gift of salvation that none of us could have earned. All our efforts together would have not earned it. But, Father, simply by the gracious act of your son dying in our place. Through him, we have access to your throne. Oh God, we pray that your spirit would move among us and fill each of us today, that you would cause each and every heart here, no matter what their background, no matter what circumstances are going on in their lives, we pray that each and every one would come to know the reality and truth of the resurrection, that they would believe it, remember it, that we would live according to it, and that, Father, that we would be those who would be used by you to go into the world and tell others that Christ is risen indeed. Father, uh, we pray that you now would guide our time and lead us in this time of worship through the hearing of your word. 
Speak, Father, through the preaching of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I like to, you're in the gospel, while you're in the gospel, Luke, I'd like to turn our attention to John. John chapter 11, verse 25, 26. And there in John 11, 25 to 26 is a very relevant statement that Jesus makes for us today. It's a relevant passage because it addresses who he is. In the Gospel of John, he makes seven I am statements. And, you know, it's kind of a fun quiz. Later on, you're home tonight. If you're at uh, the meal, sitting around the meal, try to think about what the other six I ams are. But the first, the, the, this, this, this I am statement, I believe, among all of the seven I am statements, is the most precious of them all. And this is when Jesus said uh, to uh, Martha, he said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. You see, for all of us, no matter who we are, whether whether you're rich or poor, whether you're strong or weak, whether you're wise or unwise, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter where you're heading, no matter what you do, all of us have a similar fate. We all must eventually die. And for most of this room, you guys are all like under 20 probably in this room. That's like a far away. You think it's an eternity from now. But guarantee for all of us, eventually sometime at some point in your life, the reality of death will hit. And you're going to be, you're going to start realizing, oh, I'm going to die. And everything you've gained in this life, everything you've attained, everything you've earned, everything you've collected, Everything that is of value to us, every relationship that you have, a human relationship on earth, everything at the moment as you're facing death will be of no value when it comes to facing eternity. You're not going to look at you know, your high score on your video game. You say, oh, that's so great. I'm glad I'm going to die because I, I scored the highest, you know, on uh, Defender. Okay. Uh, I'm so thankful because I have the most, the rarest Ichiro rookie card that ever was created. Oh, I'm so thankful I'm going to go into eternity because I made so many friends. The reality is none of those things will be taken with us. The reality is we all will die. I think that's a sobering thing. Uh, those of us that are uh, here that are, work for the medical profession, uh, you know this day in, day out. I'm sure, more so than many of us. Some of you have, as we shared, have lost loved ones recently. Throughout our lives, we become those places where we become mindful of the reality of death. And when we come across death, whether it's on occasion or whether it's on a regular, daily, almost daily basis, the only thing that will matter is if we have believed in Jesus Christ. Because the one who has faith in him, according to what Jesus said, will live even if he dies. And he says, furthermore, that the one who believes in him will never die. You'll never die. That is, you'll never be separated from him forever. And this hope, brothers and sisters, is ours because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That is, he's the source of, of resurrection. That when you die, you will have, you'll one day be raised to life again. He's the source of life, that is life eternal. That life doesn't just end, we just don't cease to exist when we die. We all have a soul that is eternal and that will have a destiny, whether in hell 
or in heaven. Jesus is the source of our resurrection from the dead and the source of eternal life. And he proved that when he rose from the dead on that third day. We call that Easter Sunday. And the question that Jesus asked of Martha still applies today. I am the resurrection of life. And he said, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and life? That through his death, through his resurrection, that he is the source of your resurrection. He's the source of your eternal life. And I, if you're not sure, it's okay. I'm glad you're here today. Because the word of God has brought you, the God has brought you here so that the word of God might speak to you today. So that today you might have certainty to know that Jesus is truly the source of our the resurrection, the source of our life, eternal life. For those of us who already believe this, the follow-up question that I would ask of you and challenge you as we look to this text is, do you remember this? Not just today, but do you remember this on, every, on a daily basis? Sometimes we talk about, oh, I, I, we need to have the, a daily preaching the gospels to ourselves daily. And we oftentimes think of that means that remember that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that's part of the gospel, isn't it? But the other part of the gospel is that Jesus rose from the grave. That, there's, that when we preach the gospel to ourselves, we also remind ourselves that Jesus is alive. And when we think that Jesus is alive, that reminds us that there is more to this life than just this life. That there is a life after this life. That there is something beyond the physical or material that is spiritually, eternal in value. More precious, more than what we have even here on earth. Though we have many precious things here. Do you remember the, the resurrection? Because the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection will influence how you live at work, how you live at school, how you live at home. It will influence how you relate to your family, friends, co-workers. And it will especially affect how you live when you're at the hospital when you're visiting the nursing home or you're in the nursing home, when you've had that visit with the doctor or when a loved one hears that news. The resurrection is the greatest truth, the greatest statement that Jesus, of Jesus' I am statements. It is most precious because all of us need to know that he is the resurrection of life. Our passage today, as we're going to look at, is a familiar story to you. It's just simply that Jesus rose from the dead, okay? That's, that's the main point. But it's a passage that reminds us of the reality of the resurrection and that we would not go on living our lives as if the resurrection doesn't occur, hasn't occurred. You know, we can go on living as if Jesus, you know, Jesus not even being a part of our lives, just living, doing what we do. But knowing that Jesus died for us and Jesus rose from the grave should be a, a truth that impacts how we live every day. Now, this Gospel of Luke that we've been studying is, a, is the missionary doctor's effort to compile an account of the things that were fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus, the things that God ordained to take place in his life. And Luke's purpose in writing this Gospel was that the followers of Jesus might know the exact truth about the things that they had been taught. As uh, believers in Jesus Christ, all of us may go through periods of doubt, especially when we're younger Christians, 
Maybe you've gotten into interaction with someone and they say, you know, I don't think the resurrection is true. I think that's just a myth. That book is an ancient book, just like any of the many ancient books out there. They're, you can't really believe everything that's said in there because it's just supernatural things. You can't even prove that it exists. We can't, we can't uh, have any kind of evidence to, to, to show that that it was true. And therefore, because we can't prove it by science, therefore it's not true. Or it's just at best that you just don't know. Maybe you've kind of been doubting yourself. But Luke tells us, as he writes, and this is by the inspiration of God, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, he says, these things have been written so that you may know the truth about the things that you have been taught. Now, as just a context for us, in Luke chapter 23 uh, is basically the, the death, and rest, death and crucifixion of Christ in the burial of Christ. And after he was crucified and died on the cross for our sins, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a religious leader, a member of the Sanhedrin, in fact, the majority of Sanhedrin was against Jesus, but this one was for Jesus, though he was for Jesus secretly. And he asked for Jesus' body, and he received Jesus' body. He wrapped, him in linen, wrapped his body in linen cloths and then put him in the tomb. And that's when we arrive at Luke chapter 24. All this is background. And today, we, in this familiar story to many of us, but it is the story that Jesus has risen from the dead. We find three scenes that remind us that Jesus is risen from the dead just as he had spoken. Remind us that Jesus is risen from the dead just as he had spoken, that we can ascertain the certainty of the resurrection. And because he is resurrected, brothers and sisters, we have hope of life eternal. All right, so let's look at these scenes. We're going to walk through the story. Hopefully you get the, um, with all the gospel stories, it's always hard because you kind of like, oh, yeah, I know that story. I'm, especially if you grew up in the church. It's like, oh, I heard that story a thousand times. My daughter, who's, you know, four, can tell me the resurrection story. You know, she started, like, it's just, they've heard it too many, so many times. They've read it in the books a lot of times. But the challenge for us is to, to hear it and to understand it's implication for us in how we live and its application for us. So that's where hopefully we'll go to today. So the first scene we find is the scene of the empty tomb, the empty tomb. It's, it's what the women that are the subjects in this passage find. They find an empty tomb in verses 1 to 3. It says verse 1, look at verse 1 with me please, Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. They here, according to verse 55 in the previous chapter, are the women who had come with him, that is Jesus, out of Galilee. These women, uh, three of their names are identified later on in verse 10. You can look in verse 10, you'll see their names. The one is named Mary Magdalene. Uh, Mary Magdalene because she's from the city of Magdala, Magdala, a little town around the Sea of Galilee. Um, It was actually, um, according to some Talmud tradition, it was... Uh, a place that uh, was known for its prostitution. But this woman for, uh, is explicitly known as someone who had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. She was delivered from demon possession. Uh, it's, some believe that she might have been uh, the woman who was caught in adultery, that people were going to swan to stone. But nevertheless, she had been greatly delivered by Jesus, and she was following Jesus, Mary Magdalene. There's Joanna here. Who is Joanna? Joanna was the wife of the steward, uh, basically the household, the person who's the household manager of King Herod in these days. So the king uh, of uh, of uh, Judea, uh, Herod, uh, of Herod, King Herod, would his steward was the steward's 
The wife was Joanna, so she was one of the political uh, people in the world. And then there was Mary, the mother of James. Uh, Mary, was the mother, this is James, uh, believed to be James the Less. So not James, the brother of John, but one of Jesus' other disciples, the other 12 disciples, named James the Less. So this is one of the, mother, the mother of one of the, uh, the apostles. So these three ladies and apparently some other women were with them. And these women, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, at early dawn, they came to the tomb. Uh, they had, these women had followed the Lord from Galilee. They'd, they'd seen uh, him do his miracles in Galilee. They'd heard his teachings in Galilee and as well as in, when he arrived in Judea. They had supported him and the disciples throughout uh, their, his Jesus' ministry. They were also there when Jesus was crucified and died. Now out of love for him, an affection deep, they were bringing spices. They could do nothing to prevent his death. But what they could do in, is that they could express their love for him by anointing his body with spices for his burial. The woman coming now on early Sunday morning. It was the first day of the week. And along the way, according to Mark's account, in fact, all the gospels, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them have an account of the resurrection. So, of course, it's a major event. Mark 16, verse 3, tells us that along the way, they were discussing among themselves who will roll away the stone from the tomb. They had expected to find the tomb basically sealed. They had, remember, they had followed, actually, Joseph and Arimathea when he brought the body to uh, the tomb. So they knew where the tomb was, and they saw that the, the round uh, a round cylindrical disc was rolled in front of the tomb, and this was an extremely large rock. And so they wondered who would roll it away. Essentially, though, their statement reveals that they had expected, by coming today, they were expecting to find the body of Jesus in the tomb. They were expecting that Jesus was dead. They expected to find a tomb sealed, a tomb occupied. The, clearly, these women were not expecting the resurrection of Christ. They, although they had followed his ministry, saw his miracles, heard his words, they still expected to find Jesus dead in the grave. But when they got there, they found something quite different. In the next two verses, verse 2 and 3, twice Luke uses the word fine, fine, because emphasizes this is what they discovered when they came to the tomb. They were expecting one thing, but they found something else. Number one, they, the woman found an open tomb, verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. This huge stone rolled away from the tomb. You know, this, this stone would have been larger than the, this pulpit. And if, I don't know if you, you peeked your eyes out when, during this pastoral prayer, but it took like three or four ushers to move this pulpit. How many men would it take to big this huge round stone? And yet the stone was rolled away. According to... Um, Matthew's account of this, Matthew 28, verse 2, it was an angel of the Lord that had come down, and there was a great earthquake, and so that the stone, whether by the angels actually or because of the earthquake, the stone rolled, uh, rolled away. And so there was an open tomb. The really th neat thing about the open tomb, my, my daughter asked me this week, uh, um, when I was reading the story to her about the, you know, the resurrection, she says, um, did, did they, did did the stone roll away so Jesus could come out? What's the answer? The answer is no. I see you guys shaking. No, that's, of course not. Right? Because Jesus, he, if he could, when in the resurrected body, he could go through walls. 
Uh, he could, obviously, he went through the, the linen cloth. He could go through stone. The tomb was opened so that the people, the disciples, could go in and see that Jesus' body was not there. God did this for us. He rolled away the stone. Secondly, the woman further found an empty tomb. Verse 3 says, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, the, the, at this point, they don't know what had happened. They, they think that the body is simply missing. That Jesus, uh, they, they, but nevertheless, the missing body of the Lord Jesus is proof that Jesus had risen from the dead. His body was not found in that, in that tomb. Among all the major religions, if you've ever studied them all, uh, Christianity alone claims that the bodily resurrection from the, de- of, from the dead of their founder alone. No one else claims their founder rose from, uh, from the grave. Because of this claim then, because we believe that Jesus is al- rose from the grave, to prove the Christian faith false would simply require producing the grave or the body of Jesus Christ. Show us where the body... And one false explanation for... Uh, for uh, the, the disappearance of the body uh, that was popular in those days was that the disciples came and took the body of Christ. And, uh, and can that be possible? I mean, you know, we can maybe say all things are possible, sure, but the answer is no, not likely. Based upon Matthew 27, 62 and 66, there, uh, ironically, none of his disciples expected or remembered that Jesus was going to raise from the dead, said he was going to rise from the grave, but you know who did it? Remember? The chief priests and the Pharisees. They all remembered. And so they went, to, they went to Pilate and said, remember what he said? He said he's going to rise from the grave. And so we don't believe that, but lest his disciples come and steal his body, hey, we want you to get, send us, put a guard detail on this grave and seal it so that no one can en- enter in. And so Pilate says, you have a guard. He gave them a guard detail. Uh, Roman, uh, Roman guards who went with them and were, who were guarding that tomb. The, the tomb was sealed. So it was highly unlikely that the 11 disciple, remaining disciples would have overcome the Roman uh, guards. Apparently, uh, according to Matthew's account, when the angel appeared to roll away the stone, the guards were so struck with fear that they became like dead men. So maybe they were, became unconscious, unconscious or something like that. They, they fell over. But another, another train of thought is that what's more, if the disciples had somehow stolen Jesus' body, if that is the explanation for the empty tomb, then what explains the willingness of all these disciples to die for the gospel, to die? Because they know that Jesus is dead. They know that the idea of Jesus is the, being the resurrection of life is a lie. And because they, they took his body, supposedly, then why would they die for a lie? Who would suffer and die for a lie? See, the empty tomb is a reminder of the resurrection. If you go to Jerusalem today, to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem there, um, you can still find that, but that is believed traditionally to be the, the location of Jesus' uh, tomb. You can still go there and find an empty tomb. Uh, by the way, there's, just, there's a second possible location that people have believed it was called something called the garden tomb. And there, that tomb is empty too. You will not find the body of Jesus because he has risen. The scriptures tell us that it was an empty tomb. And all these, these witnesses that we see here saw the empty tomb. And 
throughout history, you imagine, any, even in those early years, it, all it would take is anyone to produce the body of Jesus to show that these Christians were nothing but deceivers and liars. But no body has been found because Jesus is risen. The empty tomb is a reminder that Jesus is alive. But for these women, they did not yet understand what had happened, right? So it required an explanation. That leads us to the next scene, which points to Jesus' resurrection. That is the angel's message. The angels explained to these women what actually took place. And this is what they, these women heard. Verse 4. And while they, while they were perplexed about this, they were confused and overwhelmed by this empty grave, empty tomb. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. These two men here uh, uh, are angels. Uh, These dazzling or literally lightning-like clothing was indicative of those who had come from the presence of God. You remember angels in the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, always come and act as God's servants, but particularly God's messengers. With regards to Jesus, remember, it was angels who came and appeared to Zachariah, an angel who came and appeared to Zacharias to announce the birth of the forerunner of Christ. It was an angel that appeared both to Mary as well as to Joseph to announce the miraculous conception of Christ. It was an angel that appeared to shepherds to announce the birth of Christ. And so it is fitting that once again an angel appears to now announce the resurrection of Christ. Because these things regarding the Christ are all miraculous things. And if you leave it up to man to explain, we will come to our best naturalistic explanation. And that's the best we can do. We need God's divine revelation to know the truth about Christ. And that is what the angel is sent for, but that is why we have this book. Because this book records for us from God, by, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of these, the many authors of, the, of this Old Testament and New Testament, the words of God. And we have come to receive this book passed down and down through the generations, translated for us, preserved by, uh, by scribes throughout the ages so that we would know the word of God. We would know the truth, God's truth regarding the empty tomb. Although the women were terrified here, the angels had come to encourage them. And they gave them a message, a message from heaven. Angels never come up with their own message. They say, well, you know, I think this is the answer. Here's my explanation. The angels always come with a message from God. And so verse 5 we read, As the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? See, as we look at this heavenly message here from the angels, we could break it down in three parts just for us to kind of think through. First of all, there is a word of of gentle rebuke, word of rebuke. Uh, It is done with gentleness here. It's a subtle thing, but it's a question that they ask, and the question that they ask is this, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Why do you look for a living one, the living one among the dead? You know, if you ever go to a cemetery, do you ever go there to meet someone? Not a living person. When you go to the cemetery, you go there to meet someone who passed on, someone who you loved, remember. And here, these women were reminded by the angel, why do you seek the living one 
among the dead. They were looking for Jesus. They did not understand that he was the living one. By the way, some of your translations actually state, why do you seek the living among the dead? And that's not quite the, the accurate translation. The Greek word translated living is a, it's a, pre, it's a participle. It's a present tense. So it's, this is continually. This is a continually living one, and it's in the mass and singular form. So it's not just living in general, but it's a particular living person that is the living one. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Clearly, this is a reference to Jesus Christ alone. He is the living one. He is the source of life. He is alive. He is, though he died, he has risen from the grave. The one who professed to be the resurrection of life is now alive again after dying on the cross. And so the angel's reproof of the woman basically reproves them for coming to look for Jesus in the grave. But they did not expect what they saw here. Secondly, the angels give the ladies a, a word of resurrection, the word of an explanation of this resurrection. They say, he is not here, but he has risen. You're looking for the living one, but he's not here. He is risen. They point to the fact that Jesus is not in the tomb. And in contrast, he's not in the tomb, but he has risen. He's raised up. The word he has risen is, uh, could be in, the, is in what's called a passive tense. So it could be translated as he has been raised. The implication is that Jesus has been raised up by God, by someone, and that is by God. He's alive because of God. Every aspect of Jesus, and their minds is that every aspect of Jesus' life happened because of God, because of God was in control, because God's hand is in it, because of God's predetermined plan and power. This is not a mistake that happened. Jesus didn't accidentally become the Messiah and die, and so that God had to raise him from the dead. Jesus, God, by his predetermined plan, intended to send Jesus to earth to die, and by the intention of God, that God would raise him from the dead. This was an intentional Messiah. Lastly, the angels give a word of reminder. The women had their own, had with their own eyes seen Jesus die and was buried. And why wouldn't they expect to find his body in the tomb then? Why? Because, the angels explain, Jesus had told them otherwise. They had simply forgotten. Notice the angels say, remember they say, oh, you didn't know, but we're going to tell you that this is what happened. No, they're saying, remember how he spoke to you. Remember how Jesus had taught you. A lot of times we think of Jesus teaching, we see, uh, and sometimes he's talking to his disciples, and they may refer to just the 11, but it refers to a, a, maybe a whole group of other disciples that are present in the midst, and included many times among them were these women who had followed him for all the way from Galilee. And Jesus had told them about the resurrection though they did not understand or remember it. Jesus, on many occasions, had told his disciples exactly what would happen to him. One example of that is in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Luke 9, 22, where he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. See, Jesus, the, Jesus had taught these ladies, had taught his disciples three particular things about what would happen to him. Number one, Jesus had taught that he would be handed over to sinful men. 
This could, uh, this would include, could and would include Judas's betrayal of Jesus with a kiss and for thirty pieces of silver as he kisses him and allowing the Romans guards to come and arrest Jesus and hand him over to, uh, to the Sanhedrin for trial. It could refer as well to all the times where Jesus is handed from sinful men to sinful men, from religious leader to different religious leaders to political leaders, back to religious leaders, back to the political leader. Six different trials Jesus had on the night in which he was arrested. And from sinful men to sinful men, each and every one was declaring him guilty, declaring him worthy of death. Many... uh, and they each then, uh, and therefore, Jesus taught, secondly, that he would be crucified. In the end, Pilate then, uh, with, because of the calls of the crowds, uh, had Jesus crucified to please the crowds. Jesus knew that he would die. And this, and the profound thing is that of all the people that must die, here was the one we had no reason to die. All of us must die because of our sin. But Jesus, who had no sin, had no reason to ever expect to die. Because he was sinless, the sinless son of man. But why did he die? Because he died on the cross for our sins. That's, why, that's what we remembered on Good Friday. And thirdly, though, Jesus taught not only that he would be handed over to sinful men and that he would be crucified and die, but thirdly, Jesus taught that he would rise again on the third day, that he would not remain dead. He would live again as a vindication of all that he said. And that's why we see the empty tomb. And all three of these events took place not by accident, not by coincidence, but by divine necessity. Notice that the angels here, uh, when they remind the ladies about what, must ta- what Jesus had taught them, remember how he spoke to you while he was telling, saying that the Son of Man must be, must be. That word must be, it's a small little verb there, but we will gloss right over it. But if you're, as we're studying the Gospel of Luke, Luke tends to use this word a lot. He uses it about 18 times in this Gospel, compared to much more than, about eight times more than any of the other Gospel authors does. And this word implies divine necessity, divine intention, divine purpose, that everything that, takes to, that happens to Jesus must happen because it was, must happen by the predetermined plan of God. It's the fulfillment of God's promises, the fulfillment of God's word. In Jesus' life, in Jesus' betrayal, his death, his resurrection, God is in complete control because he's bringing his word to pass. These things must happen because God promised that they would happen. They must happen. And so despite Jesus' teaching his disciples regarding his death, they, they didn't understand it. They did not remember it. They had, uh, many of them who were under this ex- expectation that Jesus was going to be a political ruler, and that he was going to replace Rome. He was going to rule an actual kingdom on earth that would be a kingdom of peace. They did not expect him coming to be a spiritual deliverer, a spiritual Messiah who would die for their sins and deliver them from sin. But what Jesus had told his disciples would happen, happen exactly as he told them. He said he would be delivered into the hands of evil men, and he was. He said he would be crucified, and he was. He said he would die on the third day, and rise. he would raise on the third day, and so he was. 
He's not in the empty tomb because he has risen from the dead, just as the angels and just as Jesus himself had explained to them. The angel's message is really not the angel's message. It's God's message. By God's revelation, through the angels, as well as through Jesus Christ himself particularly, we can have certainty that these things took place because Jesus predicted them before they took place. And that's why we have the book today. This book is a confirmation for us of these realities. So having reminded, been reminded of Jesus' words about his resurrection then, move from the scene of the angel's message to the third and final scene, the woman's response. The woman's response in verses 8 through 12. How did they respond to this message? And their response, as well as the response of the, the greater group of disciples, is a further confirmation of the reality of the resurrection. Verse 8 through 10, I'll read. And they remembered his words. So here they finally remembered. And returned from the tomb, reported all these things to Levin and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James, also the other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. So having heard the reminder, they, they, the ladies all of a sudden remember the things Jesus. And, you know, don't blame them because let me ask you next Sunday what I just preached on this week. You go, uh, did you, you talk about Jesus dying? Yeah. No, I spoke about Jesus' resurrection. Trust me, I don't remember what I preached on last week, okay? We forget. We forget. And so it's not surprising that they forgot. But nevertheless, we have no excuse. We have the Spirit of God reminding us. But nevertheless, these women remembered. They remembered his words. And so they, they responded to it. They remembered and then, but before they respond, they believed these words. They believed that the words that Jesus taught were true. And they, res they responded in belief to the reality of his resurrection. And so they obeyed the angel's instruction. Matthew 28, verse 7, the angels actually instructed the woman to go quickly and tell the disciples of Jesus, the rest of the disciples, of, that he was risen from the dead. And that's exactly what they did. They returned from the tomb. They reported all these things to eleven and to all the rest. They went to tell the disciples in belief. And by the way, though it's not explicitly stated here, the fact that these women are the first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ is another evidence for the reality of the resurrection, that it's not a fabrication. Because in those days, by these days, a woman's testimony, especially in Jewish culture, was not allowable in court. It was not uh, something that was acceptable. It was not considered legitimate testimony. So if you can imagine, if this was going to be fabricated by the men of those days, the followers of those days, they would want to add legitimacy to their, the testimony. Their first witnesses would be whom? Of course, themselves, the apostles. You would say, oh, John, I was the first one who was at the tomb. I saw, or Peter would say, I was there first, and I saw everything, and, I, I, and Jesus was raised. But that's not what we hear. We find that the women were there first. These women are the first to bear witness to the greatest truth in human history. They were faithful because they believed. They loved the Lord. It wasn't the disciples going to anoint his body on that Sunday morning. They loved him. And they went and they, they wanted to minister and to show their love. And they had the, first, the blessing, that first opportunity to hear of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, Mary Magdalene, 
according to John, is uh, one of those who first saw the risen Savior. And so these women told the disciples. But notice the response of the apostles. The, the, the 11, the remaining of the 12, that had been chosen by Jesus they had followed him everywhere. They had seen him do his miracles. They were sent out two by twos. They had done great things in his name. Did they believe? Verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. It's quite shocking that the apostles themselves responded in disbelief here. These men who had lived and walked with Jesus could be so slow. In getting it. After having seen and experienced the many miracles of Jesus, most recently they'd seen even the resurrection of Lazarus. That he himself would rise from the dead shockingly was nonsense to them. It was, it was silly to them. They could not believe it, but Peter, but Peter had enough sense to go check it out. In John's account, we're gonna, he will tell us that both he and Peter go to check it out. But Luke here focuses on Peter alone. Verse 12, we listen to the last and final verse. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling what had happened. Peter runs to the tomb, and sure enough, the stone was rolled away, just as the ladies, the woman had said. As he looks in, enough, in, sure enough, the body of Jesus was not there, just as the, the woman had said. Only thing there is, are the linen wrappings folded up, almost wrapped up as if the body had just disappeared in thin air, used to wrap Jesus. In fact, John's account tells us that even the, the face cloth was also lying by itself separately. If, if Jesus' body was... Uh, stolen, they would have taken the linen cloths along with the body. It wouldn't take time to take off the linen cloths. So having seen the empty tomb, Peter went home marveling. Actually, John tells us in his gospel that, he, that it was at that moment that John believed in the resurrection. But Peter, John, and the other disciples would eventually come to believe. All of them would. Thomas, of course, being the most infamous and being the delayed, I will not see him. I don't believe until I actually see him. They would come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus after seeing him several times, Jerusalem, then in Galilee, and then back in Jerusalem before his ascension to heaven. So the response of the disciples, the women, and eventually the apostles, and all the others points to the reality of the resurrection. Eventually, they all came to believe, and they all were transformed, and they all went out to boldly tell others about the Christ crucified and risen from the dead. When Jesus was arrested, think about it. What did the disciples do? They fled. On the day that he was risen, where were they? They were hiding in fear. Peter, their spokesman, as infamously we know, that he himself personally denied knowing Jesus Christ three times. Yet, when we read the book of Acts, we see how this timid group of disciples was somehow, some way, transformed into the toughest, most fearless, most self-sacrificing band who would spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire throughout the remainder of their lifetimes. They would die as martyrs. They would challenge the religious establishment. They would sacrifice their possessions for one another. 
They would boldly proclaim the gospel everywhere they went. They would leave everything behind for the call of of their Savior to proclaim Christ crucified and risen. Their initial disbelief became a belief that that they boldly testified. And the only explanation for this is that the the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true because only belief in a resurrected Christ would drive these disciples to live as as they lived, to speak as they spoke. No one would live this way. No one would speak this way if they knew it was a lie. As soon as the pressure comes, as soon as death is threatened, as soon as any loss is possible, you would flee, find a way to get out. I recently came across a quote, perhaps you've seen it, it's been floating around on Facebook sometimes, a quote by Charles Colson, special counsel to President Nixon. He went to prison for his part in the Watergate scandal. And I have the, uh, you know, I have the quote here. Here's his quote. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. See, as believers of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, we can respond to the truth like the disciples did in, the, in Jesus' day and go forth and tell others because it is a reality. It's not just something that's a, it's not a myth. It's not something that might have happened. It did happen. And that's why your lives, if you believed upon Jesus Christ, has been changed, has been transformed. That's why we don't just live for just this world. This, things of this, of this temporal world. We live for an eternal world, a future kingdom. See, the truth of the resurrection, brothers and sisters, is established in God's word. It is confirmed by the discovery of the empty tomb. Jesus' body has never been found. It will never be found. It is confirmed, furthermore, by the explanation of the angels, the message of the angels, that everything that happened to Jesus from his arrest, his death, to his resurrection was predicted by Jesus beforehand. And finally, it is confirmed by the response of the disciples. The belief of his resurrection empowered the early church to go forth boldly, proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. And may you and I, brothers and sisters, who know this truth, who have heard of it today and read it, may we go forth and do the same. For Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was buried. But he did not stay there. He rose again. He is alive and he gives life to all who believe in him because he is the resurrection and the life. Our lives are changed. And as long as we remember this, we will live our lives with this as our purpose, our aim, our goal, because that is our future, because Jesus died and rose for us. Now, I want to say one final word to those of you here who are not yet believers in Christ. You're, you're, you've, just, you've come, you've been invited by a friend, family. We're thankful, I'm thankful to God that you're here. And uh, I want to just 
uh, have just challenge you and, and for you to something to think about. What do you think about the resurrection? Was it a real thing? Was it made up? Do your own research. Go study for yourself. Check it out for yourself. I encourage you to. Many people have checked it out for themselves, come to realize the reality of it. Because if it's true, if the resurrection is true, then that should make a difference in your life. The fact that the, Jesus says he's the resurrection life changes all our lives. And, how I want to, and it changes all our lives because his resurrection is a sign to you. It's a sign to the, all of us. There's one sermon I'm going to turn you to, or one past, last passage I'm going to turn you to, and it's Acts 17, verse 30, 31. And this is basically the Apostle Paul. He's, he's coming to Athens, and he's on the Mars Hill, and he's, he realizes all these other temples, the different gods, and he has this great opportunity to, to explain about what he believes, because they heard him talking about the resurrection. He said, that's a weird thing. We never heard of that before. Tell us about this. And so he starts preaching them this message, explaining about who God is and what he, that he's the creator of the whole universe, and, and God has been real patient with people. And even though they, mankind worships many things that they think are God, but yet he is the true God. And then at the end, verse, in verse, near the end, verse 30, 31, Paul says these words. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere, that's all people everywhere, that's everyone here, everyone around the world. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Repent means to turn away from sin and to turn in faith to Jesus. Why? Because, verse 31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. God has set apart a day in which he will judge the world. And he will judge the world righteously. Fairly, justly, everyone will get what they deserve on that day. And he will do it through a man whom he has appointed. That man is Jesus Christ. And how do we know that this is going to take place? Because having God has furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is a confirmation of who Jesus is. He's the Son of Man. And he came not in, the first, in his first coming to save the world, not to judge the world, but he will come again the second time to judge the world. And therefore, because he is going to come and judge the world, there is a, God is saying to everyone everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ to turn away from sin because that is a road to destruction and turn in faith to Jesus Christ because he is salvation and forgiveness of sins. He gives purpose to life. He gives the, the meaning to life that you have been looking for, that you have been, that you have been, that you have been missing because he is your creator. It's because of the resurrection. And I challenge you and invite you, if you have not yet believed, consider it. And if you recognize, you come to a place, you realize that, yes, the resurrection is true. And Jesus, therefore, did die on the cross for my sins, that today you might believe in him and be saved. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word and pray that you would uh, <clears throat> continually remind us of the resurrection. Thank you, Father, for the truth of it, the confirmation of it in your word. And thank you, Father, that the gospel of Jesus Christ 
is ours. Thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, the hope for all of us who face death. And Lord, may you cause each of us to not only remember, but especially those here who do not yet know Christ, that they might know, believe in Jesus Christ today and receive hope and eternal life and forgiveness of sins and abundant life. And Father, we pray that we would continually be transformed because of the power of Christ in us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.